Surely uh, some of the most joyous times, or maybe the times when the most people have felt the most joy at the same time, uh, happens after victory in a war, right? I mean, these are, these are pictures that were taken after World War I and World War II. If um, there were similar celebrations after the American Civil War and the American Revolution, that the like the video and footage is a little harder to come by from those, but this is what victory in war should look like, right? I think so. But today, we're going to read about a victory in war. And it's not going to look like that. Today, we're going to read the story of King David's forces defeating the forces of David's um, rebellious, treasonous son named Absalom. And although I won't have any pictures to show you of the, of the scene at the end of that victory, you're going to be able to tell it doesn't look like it should. To get us caught up where, we, where we're picking up today, some of us haven't been here uh, prior weeks, and it's been two weeks for any of us because of Christmas. But here's where we are in David's story. David uh, has this son, Absalom. He's at this point the oldest uh, son who's in, at least legally in line to be king. And over the past few chapters, here's what Absalom's life has been like. He murdered one of his brothers. Then he went into exile, but bullied his way out of exile back home. He lit a friend's field on fire as a part of that plan. So he's an arsonist, among other things. He spent four years building political support for himself, all while uh, building grievance against his father, David. Then he organized and executed this treasonous overthrow, this coup against his father. He got his father David kicked off the throne and out of Jerusalem. Uh, Absalom took a couple hundred hostages from David's, David's uh, administration. And then once Absalom got into Jerusalem to really prove that he was going to be king there to stay, he initiated physical relationships with 10 of David's concubines in public on the roof of the royal palace. Other than that, he's been a great kid, right? He's been just the kind of guy you'd want. Well, the story of his defeat, spoiler alert, he loses. But the story of his defeat is a strange one. David's orders don't get followed. Um, Absalom's end is anticlimactic. There's a weird foot race. David has his priorities mixed up. And then one of David's subordinates gives him a real tongue lashing at the end of this thing. That's where we're going. We're going to read um, all of chapter 18 and eight verses of chapter 19. We're going to read them a chunk at a time. I'll kind of explain what we're reading because it's a 3,000-year-old story, and so it makes it a little bit hard to, to understand. Then at the end, we'll 
discuss what I think we should learn from this passage because we have this crazy little habit around here we call teaching the Bible. It's what we do. So let's do that this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 18 begins this way. Then David numbered the people who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. David sent the people out, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai the Gittite. And the king said to the people, I myself will surely go out with you also. But the people said, you should not go out to war. For if we indeed flee, they will not care about us. Even if half of us die, they will not care about us. But you, David, are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, now it's better that you be ready to help us from the city. Then the king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. And so the king stood beside the gate and all the people went out by hundreds and by thousands. Okay, when we last saw David in this story, David was hightailing it across the Jordan River running away from Absalom's forces. This was a chaotic retreat. His men are spread out. They're outnumbered. And he, had, he, he attempts and, and accomplishes a night crossing of the Jordan River to put that natural barrier between himself and Absalom. Once he's over there, he can take a breath. There's a passage of some time. And David, from his spy network, learned that Absalom is going to attack with a large force. And what we read in these verses first is the language of organization. David's a military man. He organizes the forces he brought with him, and I'm assuming that more volunteers are showing up like from, from the countryside, so to speak. And he's organizing them into an army, that language of the hundreds and the thousands, commanders of that. We would say he had generals, he had colonels, he had sergeants, right? They're organized. The next thing we learn in those verses is that David says, and I'm going to lead you guys out personally. And all of his men say, that's a terrible idea. Why? Because David, and this is, a, this is throughout this whole story, David doesn't grasp stuff in this story that everyone else grasps. What he doesn't seem to grasp here is that, that David is the cause. David is what they are fighting for. What are his men fighting for? They want David to be king, right? That's why they say, listen, if we go out of this war and some of us die, the cause goes on. If you get yourself killed, this thing is over. That's why you are worth more than 10,000 of us to this cause, because you're the cause. So, David says, all right, he acquiesces to that. I'll stay in his, his headquarters at a place called Mahanaim, and that's the walled city that he is in right now. He stays there. But as, before he sends them out, he gives a really confusing order. It reads this way. This is verse 5. The king charged Joab and Abishai and Ittai, saying, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king charged the commanders this way concerning Absalom. David says, whatever happens, good luck out there, but whatever happens, be gentle with my boy Absalom. I, 
there had to be troops in the crowd who wanted to raise their hand and say, excuse me, what? Just from what we read in the first four verses, why did David's men not want David to go out with him, with them to fight? Because their cause was going to continue as long as David survived. Isn't that true? Well, won't that be true on the other side of this thing also? As long as Absalom is alive, if he has proven anything, Absalom has proven he will do anything to become king. What David doesn't grasp in this story, he's the only one that thinks he can be king and have a relationship with Absalom too. And he can't. So this is a, this is a bad order. For a story about war, we read surprisingly little about the actual fighting. We're going to read it all in three verses next. So he sends them out. Deal gently with my son. Here's like from the bird's eye view how the fighting went down. Verse 6. Then the people went out into the field against Israel. And Israel in this chapter is Absalom's forces, by the way. Absalom's forces are called Israel. And the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. The people of Israel were defeated there before the servants of David. And the slaughter there that day was great, 20,000 men. For the battle there was spread over the whole countryside and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. In verse 6, right here, if we didn't have anything else in his whole career, this tells us David is a military genius. David has made his mistakes, his priorities get messed up, but he knows what he's doing in the field. David is outnumbered. He's facing a superior force, but he knows from his spy network that Absalom is going to attack, so he, move, he gets to pick where this thing's going to be fought. And he picks a spot where Absalom's numerical advantage will be greatly reduced, the advantage of having more troops. We're going to fight this thing in a dense forest. It's hard to move, to maneuver large numbers of troops through, through a forest. So he literally divides and conquers. He spreads his men out throughout that forest, and you, it's easier to set ambushes, traps, all of that stuff, and it works perfectly. We're simply just told David's guys win handily. That's the story of the, of the fighting. Now, As the battle is going poorly for Absalom, we read this, verse 9. Now, Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Uh Uh-oh. For Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and Absalom's head caught fast in the oak, so he was left hanging between heaven and the earth up in the air, while the mule that was under him kept going. When a certain man saw it, an anonymous soldier of David's, he told Joab and said, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree. Then Joab said to the man who had told him, Now behold, you saw him. Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? And I would have given you ten pieces of silver and a belt. The man said to Joab, even if I should receive a thousand pieces of silver right here in my hand, I would not put out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, 
the king charged you and Abishai and Atai, saying, protect for me the young man Absalom. Otherwise, if I had dealt treacherously against Absalom's life, and there's nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. You'd throw me under the bus. You'd tell him I'm the one that killed him. Verse 14, then Joab said, I will not waste time here with you. Joab took three spears in his hand and thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he was yet alive in the midst of the oak. And ten young men who carried Joab's armor gathered around and struck Absalom and killed him. We have seen throughout uh, Absalom's life that Absalom is very skilled politically, but he's a military lightweight. Part of the genius of one of David's spies that convinced Absalom to put this plan into motion was this. He convinced Absalom to lead the military himself. And Absalom, with lots of troops, in a fight against David with fewer troops, is going to be a blowout for David's side. Something happens in verse 9 that Absalom never wanted to happen. They're in a forest. He's trotting along on his mule. He comes around some bend, and he just happens to meet experienced soldiers in the field. And then we're told that he got his head stuck in a tree. Hebrew narrative is like this. It doesn't give us a lot of details. Here's how I picture this. He trots around the corner, makes the quickest U-turn you have ever seen in your life, and is hightailing it out of there, looking behind him to see who's on his tail, and his mule runs under something, and he gets his, it's always pictured with that head of hair wrapped up in the, but we're not told that. His head gets stuck. He might have been impaled. I don't know. I just know the panicked mule headed, headed for the shed, so to speak, and leaves Absalom hanging there. One of the men in pursuit finds, finds him, goes and reports to Joab, hey, Absalom is around the corner over here hanging in a tree. And Joab says, you didn't kill him? Remember, I put a price on his head. Remember, I think that's what this is right here. I would have given you 10 pieces of silver and, and a belt. Maybe his drawers were loose. I don't know, but he says, I've got a price on his head. Why didn't you kill him when you had the chance? This, this young man says, I don't care how much you paid me. I don't care how much you paid me. I heard David say, don't kill my son. So I'm not killing his son. Joab says, well, I will. He doesn't waste any time. Goes to find the place. Three spears through the heart and his, we'll call uh, ten, his, 10 young men his staff officers. Make sure that Absalom can't possibly survive his wounds. That's how, that's how Absalom meets his end. Um, while we are here, by the way, the Hebrew word that gets translated hanging in this, in this chapter, it only shows up one time in the whole Bible of David's day, the Torah. And the only place it shows up is, is right here, Deuteronomy 21, 23, which says, anyone who is hanged on a tree is cursed 
by God, is under the curse of God. I don't think the original audience would have missed that, that word. This is like a flashing neon sign that says, Absalom is cursed, Absalom is cursed, Absalom is cursed. And he is. He's cursed because of his rebellion against David. And because David is God's chosen king, it's rebellion against God. He's cursed because of his immorality. But he's cursed for failing to, to pursue the only avenue we have to be rid of this curse, which is repentance. He won't do it. That's how, that's how he meets his end. Let's move on. Verse 16. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the people returned from pursuing Israel, that's Absalom's forces, for Joab restrained the people. They took Absalom and cast him into a deep pit in the forest and erected over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, each to his tent. Absalom's men ran home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken uh, and set up for himself a pillar which is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to preserve, preserve my name. So Absalom named the pillar after his own name. And, he called, and it's called Absalom's Monument to this day. All right, so in verse 16, when Joab blew the trumpet, that's the shofar. This would be like uh, the bugle in the old American army. He's sending the signal that this war is over. Stop pursuing the forces of Absalom. We're not going to go wipe all those people out. This war ended because why? Absalom's dead. That's how this thing was going to end. As soon as Absalom is dead, Joab calls off the advance. He lets Absalom's men go home. Then Joab's men give Absalom the burial he deserves. This is a disgraceful burial. There will not be any uh, burial like underneath this big pillar which he had set up like at Arlington National Cemetery, so to speak. He's not going to be in the family tomb. In fact, he's not even in the family land. He's buried in a deep pit across the Jordan River. And this deep pit and this huge pile of stones is not some sort of monument. It's because it will take an army to undo it. Nobody's going to dig him up and bring his body home. He's staying out there in this disgraced grave. This man who worked so hard for his own pride and his own advancement, his end is one of disgrace. All right, the war is over. The advance has been called off. The only thing left to do is inform King David of how it went. And there's this weird little foot race to get the news back to him that we're going to read about next, starting in verse 19. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Please, let me run and bring the king the news that the Lord has freed him from the hand of his enemies. But Joab said to him, You are not the man to carry the news this day. You'll carry news another day. You'll carry no news today because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, which is just a person from the land of Cush, you go tell the king what you have seen. So the Cushite bowed to Joab and took off running. Verse 22. Now Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said once more to Joab, 
But whatever happens, please let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, why would you run, my son, since you will have no reward for going? But whatever happens, he said, I will run. I'm going anyway. And so Joab told him, okay, run. Then Ahimaaz ran by way of the plain and passed up the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates in the wall of the city. And the watchman who was up on the roof of the gate raised his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was running by himself. The watchman called and told the king, and the king said, if he's by himself, there's good news in his mouth. And he came nearer and nearer, and the watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called out to the gatekeeper and said, behold, another man is running by himself. And the king said, then this one's also bringing good news. The watchman said, now that he gets a little closer, I think the running of the first one looks like Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, this is a good man and comes with good news. Ahimaaz called and said to the king, all is well. And he prostrated himself before the king with his face to the ground. And he said, blessed is the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who lifted their hands against my Lord the king. And David said, is it well with the young man Absalom? And Ahimaaz answered, when Joab sent me to you, I saw a great tumult, but I did not know what it was. The king said, step aside at ease. And so he turned aside and stood still. Verse 31, behold, the Cushite arrived and the Cushite said, let my Lord, the king receive good news for the Lord has freed you this day from the hand of all those who rose up against you. Then the king said to the Cushite, is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, let the enemies of my Lord, the king, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. Okay. The fighting's over. Absalom's done. Time to get word back to the king. And Ahimaaz, who was, one of, was part of David's spy network, we met him in the previous chapter. He's like, oh, oh, pick me, pick me. I want to take the message. Joab says, I'm not letting you, the son of the priest, go and deliver this message. And here's why. Joab knows David. And David doesn't have the best track record when he receives messages about the death of his loved ones in battle. It's been a while, but David once killed a messenger for bringing him news he didn't want to hear the right way. So Joab, because Joab likes to save David from himself, Joab says, I'm, I'm not going to run the risk that if David kills the son of the priest, that that won't play well at home. So it's like, here, here's this foreigner. You go run, give the message. And that's what this is. Then this weird foot race where Ahimaaz like, I'm going anyway, let me go. David's like, ah, you won't beat that Cushite. He's pretty fast. But uh, Ahimaaz took a, a flatter, a longer route, but a, but a flatter route. And he, he wins the race. Do you want to know why this race is in here? It's one of those that you read and go, man, what is this doing here? Do you know why the story is told this way? Because that's the way it happened. That's all I can tell you. Like there's nothing, uh, there's nothing super uh, special about it. This is just what happened. I don't know that there's uh, anything more to read into it. When, when David is, is there waiting for news, and his watchman looks out and says, hey, there's a single runner headed this way. David, because this ain't his first rodeo, he knows, oh, that's good news. You know why it's good news? 
Because if his army had lost, there would be waves of retreating soldiers running for the safety of the walled city. If your army is winning and advances, then they take one guy and send him back. The first guy that gets there, David knows, is Ahimaaz. Oh, I can trust this guy. And Ahimaaz says, good news, king, we won. But immediately, King David says, what's up with my son? And Ahimaaz goes, uh, I, uh, I mean, I saw something over that way, but I, uh, I'm not real sure. He chickens out. He knows, he knows Absalom is dead, but something looking at David's like, I think I'm going to let the Cushite actually deliver this message. And the Cushite does. He comes and says, hey, all the people who are against you have been defeated. David says, what about my son? And he says, let the enemies of my Lord, the King, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. That's a flowery way of saying, you want to know what's, uh, what's up with Absalom? He is just as dead as I wish all your enemies were. And the rest of the passage is about how David responds and how Joab chews him out for the way he responds. Let's finish the story. Verse 33, the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate of the city, that's kind of important, and wept. And here's what he said while he walked, paced around, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, I wish I would have died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then this was told to Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. The victory that day was turned to mourning for all the people. For the people heard it said that day, the king is grieved for his son. And so the people went by stealth into the city that day, like people who are humiliated, sneak away when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, Today you have covered with shame the faces of all your servants, who today have saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives, the lives of your concubines, by loving those who hate you and by hating those who love you. For you have shown today that princes and servants are nothing to you. Now I know this day that if Absalom were alive and all the rest of us were dead today, you'd be happy. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, surely not a man will pass the night with you. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that's come upon you from your youth until now. And so the king arose and he went and sat in the gate and when they uh, told all the people, behold, the king is sitting in the gate, then all of them gathered before the king. In verse 33, King David, he hears that Joab is, excuse me, that Absalom, his son, is dead. He completely falls apart. And listen, I don't want to sound too harsh on David. I mean, I don't think David should be happy about the way his life with Absalom has turned out. This whole thing is a mess and a wreck, but David's wrong. David doesn't understand what everyone else understands. Someone is going to have to die, and it's either you or him. He chose 
this rebellion. And you can't have your throne and your Absalom also. And so, even though our author doesn't tell us Joab was right for killing Absalom, our author doesn't tell us Joab was right for chewing the king out, he lets us know. I'm convinced this is the message. Joab is right, David is wrong, and Joab saves David from himself. Joab goes and tells him, he just barges into those chambers and enough is enough. Like, snap out of it, buddy. Come on. He says, you are making those men out there feel like they lost, like they've done something wrong. And all they did was risk their lives for the cause. Guess what the cause is? It's you. They risk their lives for you. And you know who for, for who else? The sons you have who didn't betray you. What do you think Absalom would have done to those sons? He killed them all. He says, you are hate, you're loving the one who hates you. That's Absalom. And you're hating the ones who love you. That's me and the rest of us. You're acting like you'd be happy if all of us were dead and Absalom alone survived, which is exactly what would happen if Absalom wins. He say, whose side are you on in this thing? And then in verse 7, Joab really finishes with a flourish here. In verse 7, he says, you better get up and go out there and give a victory speech you better tell your men good job. You better congratulate them. You better give them their attaboys. Because let me tell you something, O king, and we'll see this as we move forward. You haven't gotten power back yet. And if you lose the support of those men out there that risk their lives for you, you're not going to have anybody left. And I won't be able to help you. Remember, what God says his best is what's best. God said David is king. And David has, he's dropped the ball here. He doesn't understand. It is him as king and Absalom dead the way God wants it. Or it's Absalom as king and David and all the rest of his family dead. So David, to his credit, he takes the chewing. And he goes out and sets in the gate um, where he was right above the gate. That's why all the men were tiptoeing back through the gate. They could hear him wailing up there as they tiptoed back into town. That's our story. It's kind of an interesting story, but what good does it do you and me? What are we supposed to learn from it? Let's do that. In this story, Two very obvious sides pitted against each other. And for each side, this is true. The king is the cause. Either David was going to be king or Absalom was going to be king. And as long as both were alive, their struggle was going to continue. So this is a, this is a war to see which one of these two men dies first. And the king is the cause. Now, for you and me, 
If you call yourself a Christian, we have a king too. And the king is to be our cause. This Christianity thing, this faith system that we are in, more than it is about anything, more than it is about a moral code where there's things we should avoid and not do, there are good things we should work hard to do. Uh, there's church attendance. There's other, those things are all important and good. But more than this thing is about any of that stuff, this Christianity thing is about Christ. It's about Jesus. And he is supposed to be our cause. Our faith is about figuring out what is his will. What are his desires? What will bring him glory? That's what this thing is about. Everything else, the morals, the do's, the don'ts, the church attendance, that builds out of someone who has made the king his or her cause. When I make the king my cause, the rest of that stuff becomes important. But it flows out of having Jesus and his glory as my cause. Now, Just like in this story, there's a rival to Jesus' lordship in my life. And just like in this story, someone has to die before we can decide who the real king is going to be. But in Christianity, if Jesus is going to be my Lord, guess who has to die? Me. Me. Jesus already died. He rose again. Yes, that's very important. But listen, one of, the, one of the most prevalent themes in the New Testament is the theme of death to self. Because the writers of the New Testament know there is a rival for Jesus' lordship over our lives, and it's us. Someone has to die if Jesus is going to be king. That's why we read things like this. Paul wrote, it's no longer I who live. I've put myself to death. It's Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus himself in Luke said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. That's an instrument of execution, death to self daily and follow me. Jesus again in John, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. It's just one little piece of wheat. But if it dies, it will bear much fruit. That's not about farming. It's about a disciple of Jesus. We need to die to ourselves. Let Jesus be the king and watch what kind of fruit he will bring. The king, we have a king and the king is to be our cause. Now, if the king is going to be my cause, though, that will require some very difficult decisions. In Matthew, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. As Christians, we come to faith, and there's this 
There's this way of life that is really attractive to try to live where we try to kind of straddle both sides of the fence. I really just kind of want to do my own thing and what I want to do and be good enough to make God happy. But Jesus didn't give a a fence. He didn't give a tightrope or a balance beam to walk. He gave a sword. It's really hard to straddle both sides of a sword. It's hard to walk the tightrope when the tightrope is a sword. Jesus said, you got to be all on one side or all on the other. And if Jesus is going to be my cause this year, I may have to die to some things that my flesh really, really likes. See, David, David messed that up in this passage. The kingdom was not his main thing. Absalom was. He thought he could play both sides of the fence. I can be king and have what God wants, and I can have Absalom too. No, you can't. Because Absalom was antithetical to the kingdom of God. They, they weren't going in the same direction. David's the only one that didn't realize that. We have a king. He is our cause. If we make him our cause, he will prune away from us even things that are not necessarily bad things, just things that drain our energy away from the fruit he wants to see produced in our lives. So we have a king. The king is to be our cause. If he's going to be our cause, that will require some very difficult decisions, which brings us to the the last lesson for today. And it's a hard one to hear. In fact, it sounds like it's false. That is, our kids can't be our cause if our king is. That's maybe the most obvious lesson in this passage, you know what? David's problem is, this is my son. I just, I want my son. But David acted. It's what Joab said. You're acting like Absalom's the most important thing in your life and the center of your life. And not Absalom nor anyone else's child was ever meant to carry that weight. If the king is going to be our cause, he has to be the most important thing. Now, don't hear me wrong. Your kids are massively important. Massively important. And if Jesus is my cause... One thing he will lead me to do is raise my children well. But what does that mean? You know what the most important thing for our kids will be one day? That Jesus is their cause. And if I make my kids my cause, why would someday they magically decide Jesus is theirs? Right? How can I point my kids at Jesus if I'm pointed at them? The king is our cause. But there is a rival. In fact, there's lots of rivals to him on the throne of our lives. In this passage, we see too, the main rival is me. Another very sneaky rival is my kids. There is nothing more important in our own lives than having the right cause that we are fighting for and that we are living for. 
Jesus Christ is the only one who can hold that and then direct us to do all the rest of the stuff in our life well. This year, 2023, let's see if we can make the king our cause. Walk together through some of the difficult decisions that may cause us to make. And if you have, if you are blessed to still have young ones at home, I would encourage you as, as best you can to point yourself at Jesus first because this thing is caught more than it is taught. Point yourself at the king as your cause first and then work to point them there with you. Let's pray. Our Father, um, thank you for your word and how alive and sharp that it is. Um, David once again becomes a negative example for us. And boy, do, we, do I see myself in some of the mistakes that David makes. God, help us to remember what the cause is. That it's you Help us, lead us to find our joy in what glorifies you. That we might lead our families, our friends, our church toward our King, who is our cause. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I think there's a Bible verse in there somewhere from Galatians. Can you find that for me? There we go. Thank you, Destry. For communion, because Paul quoted... Um, in Galatians, what, what I quoted today, Galatians 3.13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Absalom's not the only one in the Bible who winds up being hung on a tree. Jesus Christ did that. And in doing that, he became cursed. He like became Absalom except it wasn't just Absalom. He also became me and you. He became our sin. He became the curse for us, paid the punishment that curse required, but then won victory over that. That's what we celebrate when we gather around the communion table. It's just that Jesus Christ becoming the curse on our behalf, winning victory over and then offering the victory he won to us just by believing he did that for us. Isn't that great? Why don't you pray with me while, uh, the, uh, while the guys come forward and we pass the bread. Father God, I thank you so much for sending your son, son to be the curse that we deserve, that we uh, earned but he swallowed the punishment, the curse required for my sin, for our sins. And so Lord, as the bread comes around, we remember the one who willingly became the curse for us by being hanged on a tree. In his name we pray, amen.
How bad of a guy was Absalom? It's one of the most despicable characters in all of Scripture. So despicable, he was cursed of God, hanged on a tree. Do you know what happened to Jesus on that Good Friday? When he became not just as big of a sinner as Absalom, but every Absalom who has ever lived. All of that sin went on his body, on the tree where he was cursed of God. Do you know why he would go through that? For you. And he said, as often as we do this, we should remember it was he who did that for us. Do this in remembrance of him. Father, as the cup comes around, we remember the blood of Jesus shed for us under the curse we deserve for our sin. Lord, as we, as we sing, as we listen, as we pray, let us remember the precious blood of Jesus that forgives us of all our sin. In his name, amen. Take the bread of life Broken for all my sin Your body crucified To make me whole again I will recall the cup Poured out in sacrifice to trade this sinner's end for your new covenant. Hallelujah! I'll live my life in Salvation's road with fear and trembling, your way born as my own, as Christ is formed in me. Deny your grace 
Remind me of the price you paid. Hallelujah. I'll live in remembrance. You've been so, so good to me. song you know what Jesus told us to remember that night when he was betrayed you know he said as often as you do this I want you to remember all the bad things you did that put me up there is that what he said no he said you remember I did this for you everything you needed to be right with the father is done Do this in remembrance of him.